Welcome to The Bag Drop, untold stories in golf. I'm your host, Matt Considine, founder of New Club, here with our co-host, the professor, Kevin Moore. Top of the morning, professor. I have been lifted out of the depths. I am chipper this morning. I am happy. Got a lot of good things going on right now. Um, so I am. I'm in a better place this week. So I'm what, what did it take? What was it? What got you going? I got three things. Probably th- I, have a, I have a theory. Oh, what's your theory? Shoot, fire away. Uh, there's this little television show we used to watch in college. <laughs> uh, anyone in their late 30s will remember this. Um, the OC. Does it have anything to do with you re-watching the classic, the classic Thursday night special, The OC, uh, on on repeat because I heard from your wife that that's uh, taking place in the Moore household. We we finished season one, started it November twenty fourth, and we have fe- um, finished season one today. Um, as we're recording, this December fifteenth. Um, yeah, California. The, the first, that's right. Best best theme song or best choice of entry song ever. Um, finish Maybe it. can we rip that off? We should rip that off for the bag drop. Maybe that could be our new uh, pump up music. The, the intro. We should. I tell you what, amazing. It's the bag drop. Amazingly it's bad. The show. bag drop. <laughs> Let's not do that. <laughs> Justin J- Jay Hill's gonna. He's gonna have a comment on that one. Um, yeah. No, great show. I mean, right? They they brought soap opera to our generation is what they did with that show. Like, and that that's that's that, really all it was, right? And it was intense. It was just a soap opera. Yeah, they actually have a new book out on it. I just. I've been reading online about it and all that. I'm like half tempted to get the book to talk about. I mean, was it was his name Josh Schwartz or something like that? Schwartz was the last name of the one of the creators, and just said how dumb they were. They were completely new. Like this was like their first major project. He's like, I don't know how we got it. We made so many mistakes, but that was one of the things was to bring soap opera to like late night television and like our generation, the young kids at that, like to give them something and. It's actually fascinating when you read about how much effort they put in that show. Like, um, what's his name? Peter Gallagher was the first person cast because they're like, we need a, a serious um, actor that will bring seriousness to the show. Like, <laughs> we need someone that's going to take us seriously. <laughs> we must be taken seriously. But anyways, yeah, that's reason number one. Just finished season one. We're definitely going to go on. We we decide we're going to watch the at least the second season. Um Reason two, graduations today. So I get to go hood a, a doctoral student, hey. Dr. Ann Waswa. Um, amazing student. Congrats, that, Ann. Yeah, graduated technically in the summer, but we don't do a walk in the summer. So um, she gets to walk today. So go do all that. Do the official hooding um, ceremony. Reason number three, end of the semester. Um, projects are graded, uh, all done. And, and it's not the end of the grading actually in this time that has me pumped up. Uh, my students did a bang-up job across my classes. This semester I'm... Uh, I'm big on inquiry, like school, the whole purpose of school should be about developing skills of inquiry. You know, it's not about training for trade or whatever, just learning algebra and rote ways. It's like, no, train skills of inquiry. So this semester actually did an inquiry project in all my courses. It was the same project across all the courses where the students had to pick a topic they wanted to inquire into and self-guide themselves all semester. And I honestly didn't know how it was going to go. It was a little... A little worried that, especially with my freshman group, that it just wouldn't go well and they wouldn't know what they were doing and they'd just stumble around and the projects would be miserable to, to grade and read. Um, but honestly, across all all classes, my doc class, my undergrad master and my master's class, plus then the freshman class, they did a bang up job. So it was kind of it was kind of cool to see that and really cool to see them just developing some skills of inquiry, which is uh, something I've been beating a drum on a lot. Um, pro tip, if it, you ever hear someone say, I, do, I did my research, 
you can stop listening to them because just making that statement in general <laughs> means they probably don't actually know what inquiry looks like and in digging into something. Um, I guess change the way I pronounce I, inquiry. Inquiry is my sure. language. Don't trust me. Inquiry. Don't. Inquiry. I think that's very apropos. Of, <laughs> that might be the old English term and it fits our theme of today as we as we dive into uh, – we're talking England. Uh, we, we're wrapping up on our kind of our fixture preview series. Today we'll be talking about the uh, – the Heathlands, as well as the southeast coast of England, where we're headed in 20, I can't believe this, 2025. Wow. Uh, reason we include it in our previews, registration opens May of 2024. So we uh, we have a full year ahead of it to look forward to. But we want to, you know, talk about why we're going there, what makes us excited about it. And I got a bunch of notes for us. Um, I think, full disclosure, neither the professor nor myself have been to... Uh, well, we've been to, we've been to England, but we haven't played golf there, and so um, uh, that's that's definitely uh, a little bit more difficult because you got to do some research and you got to dig in. But we've talked to people who know it well, and uh, shout out Peter Korbakis, who's going to be helping us out with this itinerary, uh, and and has actually done this uh, loop a couple times. And so, yeah, we got a lot of great golf to talk about today. I think today's a geeky podcast, if I'm going to guess. Like we're going to be able to geek out a bunch. Uh, but before we get there, what's well, it's, uh, what, what fun fact do we have, Professor, for today? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to embrace the graduation theme. Um, this dude, this is undergraduate. If we did annual number of college graduates, so which state produces the most college graduates in a year? What would you guess? Mm. Well, where, where, would you, mm. where would you put, let's go like, you know, top couple, but then, and also where would you put Ohio in that, in that list? Oh, yeah. Actually, I mean, there's so many colleges in Ohio, right? So, like, I, I, that's just off the hop. I feel like even like people in Chicago that grow up go to schools in Ohio. Like, there's all the little D3 ones and then there's a bunch. So, yeah, Ohio was on my list. It'd be funny if Ohio had, like, a lot of students and not many graduates. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised with that. Um, but I'm going to go with the big population centers anyways. I mean, it's got to be, like, California, uh Florida, even. Um, I mean, Georgia, maybe up there too. Uh, let's go with let's go with California as my my first guess. That's a good good logical deduction there. That's uh, California by far. Um, it's like five hundred fifty thousand mm -hmm. students a year that they put out. Um, Wait, say fifty thousand students that they graduate. Five hundred fifty thousand. Five hundred fifty thousand students yeah. that graduate yep. every year from the yep. state of California. Um, wow. I mean, their Cal system that they've developed is impressive there in terms of uh, in terms of number of high high level schools and the number of graduates that they put out, as well as I mean, especially historically, the the affordability for um, their population that's changed over the years. I mean, there's plenty of articles and research on that uh, and why that's changed. But I mean, historically, especially you go back to 60s, 70s, 80s. I mean, you could go to school and for pennies there at great institutions. But yeah, California, Texas, Florida. Um, you know, you would you would expect those, right? New York, you would probably expect to. New York's up there about three hundred thousand. Um, then we get into Pennsylvania. Makes sense. A lot of colleges. Mm -hmm. Illinois is up there. Interesting. Yeah. So after that batch I just went through, you've got Illinois. Then you get to Ohio, so you're you're right on that. Right. You know, you talk to any a lot of the Georgia people that have spent time up in Ohio, whatever. They're like, there's a lot of 
colleges when you drive through there, right? There's <laughs> yeah. like any of them that gone to, to Columbus or like every five minutes you drive, you end up by a college. You got what, Denison, is it? Well, Denison's outside of it a good bit. You got Kenyon just outside of it, right? You got, um, where'd your brother go? Your brother went to? John Carroll. Is that in Columbus? Blue Where's Streaks. That? Where's, is that outside? That's uh, Cleveland. 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 East right. Cleveland. I mean, all the, the little little liberal arts colleges across uh, Ohio that you just don't see in a lot of other states. Um, right. But I right. think Illinois, Pennsylvania, and Ohio, and New York all have that structure, right? Where they all these yeah. sort of non-Ivy League, you know, high dollar, high private institutions that um, pump out a decent amount of students every year. Boy, that's a, that's, a, that's a lot of people coming out into the workforce looking for gigs. Hopefully, hopefully, there's jobs for them. That's coming up yeah. That's year. the whole. That's the whole college sell, right? Come, come us. Get your uh, get your degree, and there's going to be a job waiting for you. And for a while, that's true. But you know, there's definitely diff- depending on field. That's not always true anymore. You know what's a cool job? Club fitters. And I want to give a shout out to the club fitters at Titleist real quick. Uh, our our quest for the crown annual team competition through new club. Uh, we have awarded our winners and they're going to be going through the custom fitting process for their T T one or T series irons. I was T 100. You might be T 150, maybe T 200. And I've got a three fifty. I've got all three of those in my bag. Kevin's got them all in the bag. I, I, uh, was more one dimensional, but that is my game. And, uh, it, it's it's just awesome going through the fitting process. And, uh, you know, one thing I'm excited for, too, beyond, I know we've been talking a lot about the T-Series irons, is the uh, SM10s, yeah. the new wedges coming out. Kevin, what's the difference between grind and bounce? Ooh, I mean, grind, I actually don't know how to articulate this, uh, like, in full detail, because I'm not a gearhead. I'm going to admit that. Like, I'm a technology head, but when it comes to gear, I'm a little bit more of an artist. Um, like, I'm with these wedges, one of the things I'm most excited about is the customization you can do on the back of the wedge and, like, make it all pretty and do, do fun mm. stuff like that. But <laughs> Yeah, you're just, grind, you just want to get good vibes looking in the bag and see it. I mean, ba- bounces with the soul, right? Bounces with the soul. Um, and basically, it's dealing with, like, the angle of attack and how it interacts with the turf in terms of the amount of below the leading edge how much room you have back there and that's gonna you're gonna want that customized relative to the type of turf you typically play on the type of sand you typically play on because that's gonna influence when you're coming to the ground do you want to dig a little bit how much you want to bounce like literally bounce and sweep through the ball that's gonna depend on that um let's grind you tell me i i actually don't like you said it's a hard thing to describe the two differences and if we had our friend ryan barath on he'd probably tell me differently but uh, he's, he does a great job of kind of just simply saying these very complicated concepts. But I, it was just funny because I was talking to the fitters at Titleist and uh, I'm going to go through a wedge, wedge fitting first of, of the spring because um, I was like, yeah, I like that look of the grind, but I, I need to have this much bounce. And, and the comment they said was, man, sometimes we wish we could just remove bounce from the, uh, the, 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 the club because obviously you have, you know, your whatever degree of the, the the wedge of 56, a 60, a 64, whatever it is. And, and then you got the bounce eight degrees, mm-hmm. 10, 12, but the, the way they interplay is super significant. And the yeah. grind that you have on your club is, is actually every bit as important as, is the bounce. And so 
he started describing. He's like, you know what? We'll just get we'll just get on the turf. <laughs> we'll we'll go through every grind that you're looking at and and understand it. So I'm excited to get a little education on the difference between a grind and a bounce. And if you're listening and you already know, shoot us a note. Tell us tell us what the real answer is because it's it's not. I don't think it's as easy as most people think. And um, back to your comment, like there's science to it, but there's art and and the the, the look and feel of a grind. It to me seems like what these uh, custom club makers, these people that have built their career in it, uh, they they really kind of geek out on. Mm-hmm. They geek out on all of it, but I, I'm excited to explore uh, grinds a little bit because Titleist, the amount of different grinds that they make available, there's a lot. There's a lot, and that's why the fitting process becomes very important. I think. Yeah, no. As someone went through, the, but anyways, the chipping yips like playing with different grinds was huge for me. Getting over the Bermuda chipping yips down here, like that was a difference. Um, yeah. I switched into Tialis wedges at the time just so I could play with different grinds and like get something that did not make me chunk a ball two inches every time I tried to chip. Hey, the Founders Cup, new club, Chicago finally got that cup on their turf and they they did it um, uh, in in actually I had a little bit of every turf now that I think of it uh, on the courses of Big Cedar Lodge down there in Missouri, but. We're headed to South Carolina where there's going to be some grainy, grindy uh, Bermuda awaiting our northerners. And I think I might, you know, maybe we'll get a little collection fund together. Maybe we get a bunch of uh, chipping lessons on Bermuda uh, the day one when <laughs> that's actually a terrible idea. having a lesson right before you compete. <laughs> um, but uh, but I, that is like such a difference maker, man. The day that being able to adjust to that mm-hmm. Bermuda on a ch- when you're chipping, gosh, that makes significant difference uh anywho thank you to titleist for supporting the podcast for supporting new club a lot a lot of fun stuff to look forward to there let's get to this england conversation old blighty as they call the great country of england i don't know where that nickname came from but one of my friends called oh you're you're headed old blighty i was like what what does that mean uh that that start with well, it's it's actually like soccer season. It's not as much golf season right now. So you got a Premier League team you follow? I feel like the professor would would support a club. You know, I haven't made that leap yet. Um, you know me well enough to know when I make that leap, it'll be deep and it'll be it'll be long. But that you know, it's the. I'm a little worried that if I get into the uh, the the real football scene, then just I'm going to be absorbed by it because there's just so like. How many different levels, right? In terms of the the different leagues, so I'm going to choose seven different teams to follow, and that's just going to consume all year. So I haven't, I have not dove into the world sport yet. I, I don't either. I don't either. Everyone told me that when I was when I was a, uh, became a parent, and you're up early with your kid, like Premier League's on, and you should. That's like the best time to watch is you know Sunday mornings when it's being played Sunday afternoon over there, and. Yeah, I just haven't I haven't really got fully into it. Grew up playing soccer, but uh I did have a professor when I was in Ireland who was a massive Liverpool supporter. Mm. And they weren't very good then, but he he was so cool and he was a marketing professor and uh we'd go to the pub where he was hanging out with his friends and and he was just very inviting to a few of us Americans who <laughs> we didn't have family around on the day. I think he kind of knew that. And uh so I'll always support Liverpool and uh not that I watch the games, but I know Mohamed Salah. <laughs> and they, like if I had a, a soccer jersey, it'd be his. And then uh, I know Jurgen Klopp, who um, is is their manager or their uh, their manager. Yeah. So, anyways, yeah, Premier League's always fascinating. Always 
uh, so it hooks so many people that get deep into it. But I mean, we're not I, here to talk soccer I'm or off, football. We're I, here to talk golf. To compliment soccer, I do think it's a beautiful game. My, I watch the World Cup. I watch Premier League, Champions League. Like as it's on, I love watching football just because I do think it's a beautiful, beautiful game. Um, the strategy involved, I know a lot of Americans look at it and it's like nothing's happening, it's boring or whatever, but the strategy involved with the formations and the way they play out over an entire game and what they're trying to do is, I think, much more beautiful than anything we have in America in terms of America fo- American football because um, of the way they try to That's orchestrate true. the field. and the, and the um, It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see how soccer grows in America. You know, it, it's... Heck, it's not too dissimilar from what I'm about to share about golf, where the expansion of it, you know, moves from Scotland uh, into parts of Ireland and Wales, but mostly to England, and then and then from England and Scotland and Ireland, it all comes to America, and it's this huge uh, golf boom. And so, as you know, Professor, I I have maybe a buying book problem, and the only reason it's a problem is because I'm very quick to buy a book online. And I'm very slow to read them. So a book I bought literally three years ago was The Great English Golf Boom by Michael Morrison. And I can't even remember why I bought it. Maybe it was because we started thinking about this trip, but I, I probably heard it on a podcast and you know quickly did a search and, and ordered it. Well, I didn't open it until this week because I knew you and I were going to be talking England and talking about this golf trip for New Club in 2025. And um, so I, I perused, I don't want to say I completed your book, Mr. Morrison, but I definitely pulled out a lot of, uh, he must've been an economist or something. Cause there's so many stats in this book about the growth of golf. I mean, that's really what it's about. It's just about how did golf emerge from Scotland? Because it was, um, you know, the biggest thing to happen to golf in, in Scotland is 1848, the gutta percha, the gutta percha. And you've heard the story of old Tom being involved and kind of uh, pushing back on on his um, mentor, uh, Alan Robinson, who they, their business was featheries and they mm-hmm. made featheries, but featheries were really expensive and it and it kept a lot of people out of the game. Well, the gutta percha just plummeted the price of a golf ball. And so people could now afford it and play. And uh, so that was one big thing in Scotland. The number of clubs like tripled from I think it was 1848 to 1859. Mm. And, uh, wow. and the other thing, the same, so that was that was one thing in, in from uh, the start of this in Scotland. And then uh, the railways, mm-hmm. uh, not, th- there was a lot more railways in England, but there was not many in Scotland. Uh, the, they started connecting towns to these clubs and these courses on the coast. And, and that also helped the golf boom. And the biggest thing that took golf from Scotland into England was the railways and that the the Scots themselves started coming down and saying, you know, hey, that's this is a great plot of land out here on the coast or this is a good little place to play some golf. And so the Scots, as much as the English probably don't want to give them all the, all the credit, uh, they certainly get it. Um, and so that was kind of like the first thing in, in this book. It was like, how does it stretch uh, from there. But the great English golf boom is really the years 1864 to 1914. And, and I think why I bring up this book in this boom is that's when the, all the core, every course that we're going to play 
on this trip was built during this time or was formed. The club was formed. Some had nine holes. Some added uh, a few nine holes after 1914. But you know why 1914 is kind of the end of the English golf boom? I mean, is that... Can you think of a, a thing that occurred that year? The war? No, 19... Yeah, the First yeah, World were, War. Yeah, First World War. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of these courses are uh, eternally intertwined with the two world wars, which I found... Also really, really interesting. But, uh, but here's some other stats on an English uh, golf boom. So 1859, kind of that same year that, that Scotland had, what was it, 35 clubs. Um, the England had far more railways. So as Scotland start, started to see growth because of the railways in the game of golf, got a Percha first and then the railways, England had way more. They had almost 10,000 miles of tra uh, train tracks in 1859, but they only had two, two golf clubs. Just two, that was this it. 1859, just two golf clubs. Two, two golf clubs. Do you know, clubs, yeah. uh, did he talk about in Scotland, like what the comparison was at the time? Like how many they had? Yeah, Scott, no, Scotland was at 35. Oh, Scotland's at 35. Okay, 35 golf clubs yeah, too. Yeah, Got so, it, got it. Yeah, so it, that's the and, and think about population. I'll say population in mean, England. So is many more people. So many more people. Longer, yeah. longer season down in England. Um, a little bit more. I think at that time still, yeah, more wealth. I think at that time too. Uh, Tremendous. Yes, yes. Indus, in, the industrial revolution is happening. People are now uh, living with means mm -hmm. in in England far more so than uh, Scotland, which was still still agriculturally based and. You have a whole ruling so ruling class in England too, a much more affluent ruling class yes. in England. Um, Correct. So, so the next twenty five years. Uh, well, I guess next 50, but it's breaking into two, two uh, swings. So the next 25 years, England adds uh, 100 clubs. They get to about 100 golf clubs. And then following that, the, so from the middle of the boom to the end, they added in the next 25 years, they added 1,200 clubs. So 1,200 clubs. That, think about that. In 25 years, 1,200 clubs, that's nearly one golf club per week. For twenty five years, and so that was basically a quarter of a century. The turn, a book ending, the turn of the century to the start of the century. Then too, right? If I did that you math right, something like eighteen eighty five, late late eighteen hundreds into yeah the early nineteens, and uh, that's the boom. That's wow, boom. one and, a week. When we were at our yeah. peak, do you know? Do you remember off the top? I'm putting you on the spot here. Um, do you remember off the top of your head, like in the 90s, 80s, like what America was? You know, when Myrtle, I mean, the big joke was like Myrtle Beach was building, you know, five courses a day or something <laughs> like that, right? Do you know, like any, like that? Cause that's just to rewind a hundred years and have one a week being built is, is, is yeah. astonishing. It is. It's pretty, it's pretty wild. And uh, I, d I don't know. I, I'd have to revisit some of that stuff, Kevin, on, on the American golf boom, uh, which there were really two of, you know, uh, three now, if you considered COVID, I don't know if history will reflect the same way on it. I'm sure it probably will actually 20% growth and participation is pretty, pretty darn big. Um, but yeah, I think the 1920s and then the 1980s to two, early 2000s tiger boom would, uh, I don't know if it'd be that much though. I, I mean, yeah, I wonder maybe. what it would be. I mean, Probably. We'll have to see. But what's cool about... Because across the I, entire nation, I, like one a week isn't that hard to... You know, that's... 
Right. That's only we're much that's larger. Only than 52, that's only fifty-two. That's only fifty-two clubs in a year, right? I mean, what were and then nineties in America? I mean, who knows how many we were building or in the eighties at one time? Well, we'll come back to it. But the other thing is uh, the quality of golf, if, at least in my eyes, and the the, the the beautiful part about this time frame is, you know, it's a lot of the Scottish influence and there was strategy and there was landform use. Like there wasn't a lot of, uh, not, I don't want to say contrived. It, they, they definitely uh, were, were the strategic school of golf course architecture. And those are the people, and we'll get to the people that are building some of these courses um, and, and who they are, but they, they were doing it and they were doing it all over the country. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, obviously you think about the landforms in, in England, very similar to the North and, and, and everything in the British Isles in Ireland. But uh, you got Lynxland, which is mostly the Northwest coast and in, in the Southeast, uh, Southeast coast. There is some on the Northeast, there's some on the Northwest, but Southeast is where we're headed. Um, you got, and actually they even call the Southeast coast, they don't call it Lynxland, they call it Downland, huh. which I don't know the origins of that term. I should have looked that up, but uh, Downland is, is uh, considered Lynxland, but uh, maybe it's, just south. I don't know. Uh, and then the other three are Heathland, which we're we're going to head to. Heathland's pretty fascinating when you think when you, you get down to what it is. Uh, Moreland, uh, which is very similar to Heathland, but more up in the mountains. Um, and then Parkland, Parkland, which we're very accustomed to in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and no surprise there. Like Heath, the Heathland, Linksland, Downland, they're they uh, result in probably the most, um, the best turf for golf and the most acclaimed golf courses. But 86% of all these courses that boomed in this time were, were in the Parkland. Okay. We're, uh, we're definitely inland golf courses. So uh, commenting on London real quick, London had 150 clubs by 1914. So there's a pretty good concentration of those 1,200 plus clubs, you know, almost, almost 2,000 at that point. Uh, but London had 150. Most of them are around the train lines. However, and this was, I think the Michael Morrison in this book was, was, uh, keen to point out the expanse of golf from Scotland relied on the railways, but England, not so much because a lot of these were in small towns and a lot of these clubs were, you know, 150 in London. Yes, that was true, but people were already moving to this, the sprawling suburbs of these these areas in London, away from the industry, and it's actually where the idea of country club emerged, hmm. and and very different than in uh, Scotland when people were hopping on trains, people wanted to live by their country clubs at this point, and so uh, bicycles. In in his, he has a whole chapter on bicycles. There was also a bicycle boom in England at this time. And bicycles were being built to carry golf clubs because that was the main mode of transportation. And when you look at all these early clubhouses that were built around the turn of the century, they had places for you to park your bicycles, like a lot of them. Oh. And they would store bicycles and the clubs would go with. And so it was, uh, it, I thought that was kind of fascinating. Is like people, you know, as we understand country clubs today, and and the geography matters so much to where you you work and live. Um, that that comes from England. That was not a Scottish thing. That the that you had to live by your golf club. That is is where we have England to thank for our country clubs, which I found very interesting. Wow, I'm sort of uh, 
having fantasies about this bike idea because I live two miles from my club. I mean, it's a straight shot too, right? I, I just need to find that bike that I can throw my clubs on. And then assume my country club, they might frown on me chaining up a bike somewhere along a fence or whatever near the club. I, I'm not sure they would appreciate that, but that has me tempted to try it and, and see how it goes over. So I, I could I could talk the history of this stuff all day, and and I don't want to uh, bore us before we get to the actual golf. But the uh, last the kind of last piece to um, this golf boom, and and uh, two other things, I guess. One is the the expense. You know, the average English uh, was making over 150 pounds a year, which was I think a taxable bracket. Like once you got to 150 pounds, then you were taxed. Um, and so the, the the average spend, and it really did break into just like anything, uh, socioeconomic levels. And there was a high end, a middle end, and a low. The high end of an English golfer spent forty pounds a year uh, playing golf, which, if you think the average person making one fifty, that's a pretty good size of their income. Yeah. So they were. This is how they wanted to spend their money, though. And and uh, but that's that's the high end. So that's probably the uh, more. Uh, aristocratic, you know, establishment. Mm-hmm. The mid, the middle class is twenty five pounds a uh, uh, a year, and then the low would be ten pounds a year. So ten pounds a year was kind of the, uh, but but that still meant that with the average income is one hundred fifty, it was still very affordable in mm-hmm. in in terms of access. So people of all uh, levels were playing at that time, which which was a bit more um, class centric than say Scotland, because I think Scotland was. Far cheaper than that. I should I should try to compare what it was at that time, but uh, but England it start it was starting to get more expensive during the boom, but it was still very accessible. And uh, the other thing I'll say is gender. The the book has a whole chapter on uh, the ladies' golf union mm-hmm. and and how many women were playing during this time. And I found this interesting that uh, everyone thinks the idea of all male clubs came from England as well. I don't. He he argues that that probably isn't the case. That most of the clubs were not all male. They couldn't afford to. They at these rates, they needed uh, as many participants as possible. And by the end of this boom, there were over a hundred thousand female golfers. There was two hundred twenty thousand male golfers. Oh wow! So that's that's one in four uh, of every uh, golfer was a was a female. And the other thing that he talked about, I found really interesting, was. Um, one, most clubs were mixed gender, that the all-male clubs were very few and far between uh, during formation. Some had changed later for whatever reasons, but uh, women were a really big part of the game at this point uh, in, in England. And uh, a lot of them, and I found this interesting, because I think when you hear about women playing the game, you think about you know the Tuesday morning league. It's usually an older crowd of of women that are playing and and uh he said 40 percent by his data because and he i again this guy had to have dug deep into every club possible i think but 40 percent were young and unmarried of the no of the hundred thousand female golfers you know and and i thought that was interesting he he made a comment that it was almost like people would go to their club their golf club or country club uh to find a suitor Wow. To, to connect and, and play golf. So he said this was like the early, you know, hinge. It was the place you would go to find your date because 40% of all female golfers playing were young and unmarried, uh, which again, little things like that I find fascinating. Yeah, this reminds me, you know, Stephen Proctor, I think has been tweeting recently about just the, the competitive um, female golf scene, uh, I think in the early 1900s and how there was just some stand up 
competitive female golfers with huge matches that like the towns would come watch them play um, play each other and that this just makes me think because yeah that would make that makes sense those those are compatible with each other right you had this huge volume of women playing relative to the entire population so you would see more of that than we would say um today at least in the u.s did it did he get into like the structure of the clubs at all like membership vetting that sort of stuff like what was there similarities differences compared to like scotland than compared to the united states um from your eyes yeah, I think there was definitely, like I said, in those brackets, uh, you know, the London clubs were a little bit more exclusive, um, but most were still open, you know, to to different uh, societies even that were popping up at the same time. And um, actually, there's a cool story in, in one of them. But yeah, I think I think uh, club by club, I, I think the biggest difference in the structure was what I mentioned about the country club ideal, mm-hmm. that these these were uh, starting to sprawl into, and not so much the links courses. I think the links courses were formed and followed much more suit of what the links courses were in Scotland, but the the ones inland, the Parkland courses, the Heathland courses, the ones outside London, they started to take on a little bit different structure and offer other things. Uh, and that was more the country club ideal that emerged. So I would say it's the, the, the main thing, but, uh, yeah, from cost and architecture and things of that nature, it was, I think, pretty similar. Is it a safe presumption that the, you know, say inland golf courses, the, the country clubs, they look to become like a, a social hub for the, the town as well. Right. So it wasn't just a go play golf. It's like, no, this is going to be next to where people are living. Then we, we might as well make it a social hub in the sense of have other activities. So the people are gravitating here and, just the community forms around this. Absolutely, I think I think uh, people were finally coming into means to wealth. Uh, Industrial Revolution, you know, spurred that population growth during this time. By the way, was like ridiculous, like eighty percent growth. So wow. uh, yeah. that's that's why there was the boom of anything is there was more people, and I I think yeah I think that was that's a good uh, assumption that, th- that this is how people were now able and willing to spend their wealth in golf, I think has always been exactly that, right? It's how people chose to spend their leisure time, whether that's Scotland or or England. But now they had more time too mm. because of uh, industry and uh, Saturdays were obviously the, the focus of uh, the male golfer and the female golfer was much more weekday, uh, which was another reason that they wanted to um, – to make sure women always were included in this because, again, viability of the clubs, they, they needed the play, uh, which which is cool. But that's also the same percentage of male to female that we have today. I I, I thought that was interesting. Oh, is that the same that, that, in the United States yeah, or the 25%. same in England? Is that what we are in the United States? I, I think uh, that's a – yeah, United States, 25%. I wonder how they calculate – I wonder how they get that metric. <laughs> Yeah, we could we could dig into that. Yeah, that's just like membership names, or because I I feel like our T sheet, our I mean, and um, can't generalize from the club I'm at, but I'm like our T sheet is certainly nowhere near twenty five percent women. I mean, yeah, yeah, I, certainly I have not. Theories. I, I wonder, yeah, I wonder how that number is is figured out. It's everyone talks about it. It's a massive growth opportunity in the industry, uh, and. Uh, man, that needs it's a whole other podcast because 
everyone sees it, but it's it still hasn't happened. I mean, we're talking about you know 1914 here, and it was still 25 percent. Uh, I don't I don't know about play, but if we're still at 25 percent in America, you know, it seems like there's something's off there, mm-hmm. and that's probably culturally influenced, uh, societal. I know. I mean, there's so many reasons, man. But let's make that another pot. Yeah, that will. I mean, that's definitely on the on the docket to cover, and we'll get some people that are much more intelligent on the subject, um, and both experientially as well as just from research. And we'll we'll let them tell us what's going on. Love that. So on the courses, let's get some of these clubs. So that that's just a backdrop. I, I found it interesting of like how did golf get to England. How did it boom? All these courses we're playing happened during that time. So now some of the specifics. I think we can start in no particular order because this isn't our itinerary. It's just where we're uh, where we're going to be playing. Prince's Southeast Coast. So we'll go down to Southeast Coast. You know, it's it's uh, near London, but you, you fly into Heathrow and you head out to this this part of the world. Uh, the Prince's is a Charles Hutchins design of 1907. It's ranked uh, number 34 in, in England. By the way, shout out to Top 100. Uh, if anyone you know, knows the site, I, I think they do a great job of concisely getting a lot of good information out there. So I was a little pressed to, uh, to, to on time to dig. And a lot of this information comes from top100golfcourses.com. So uh, kudos to their team. I think they do a, a nice job. Not that Golf Digest or Golf week don't uh those are great as well but i I like the way they format their site and everything so it was very helpful just kind of learning about these places that uh that were headed so princess is ranked number 34 on their list in england uh it hosted only one open i think that's kind of a cool stat like they got one and it has to do with the world wars the the course got uh absolutely decimated in the second world war apparently Mm, like more so than any of the coast yeah, think about that, right? Like that's the battleground. So a lot of these courses had freaking planes and tanks and ammo like parked on their on their course. Like mm-hmm. that's pretty. I, you can find some pictures of it too, and it's some some became cattle farms for uh, uh, to support like you know feeding the troops. It's it's pretty wild when you dig into the history on these places. But uh, the winner of that one open was. None other than American Gene Sarazen, uh-huh. nineteen thirty-two. So he was the the winner of the only Open that occurred. Uh, they do have twenty-seven holes: the Himalayas course, the Dunes course, the Shore course. Everyone says the Shore and Dunes course is the best, but debatable. And um, and then it was rebuilt by a guy named John Morrison after that Second World War. Uh, Mackenzie and Ebert, architects nerds, will know the name Mackenzie and Ebert. Mm-hmm. They're kind of the Open doctors, I suppose, for the uh, British Open presented by Her Majesty the Queen, uh, and and Mackenzie and Ebert are the staff architects who do things. So there's a ton of they kind of started the sandscape movement at Prince's. Apparently, no, okay. it was one of the early places where they said we need to expose the sand. So if you heard that term sandscapes, Kevin, you have oh yeah Prince's and Mackenzie and Ebert to thank for that. So we're gonna have Prince's responsible for yeah a lot of the architectural. Um, I don't know if you want to call it design, but at least presentation um, that's going on now. Right, a lot of people are following that sandscape um, move, especially as they're building in um, particular locations like Terra Edie and other places like that. Oh yeah, um, yep, natural. Were, natural. Do you know we're all twenty-seven built at once, or was this a a process done? 
I think that's, yeah, that believe was a, a process and most of them were, you know, most of them uh, formed with nine holes and quickly added the second nine. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I, until the late, actually, it would depend on when they're built because that was part of the book. When you have um, early courses, they didn't know if the demand was there for 18. Yeah. So they wouldn't want to have to take care of it. And it was like one greenkeeper who, in a lot of cases, laid out the course. But they didn't know if they would have enough golfers to – but put towards the end of the boom, they certainly did. And so they're like, oh, well, let's just build. And there's a couple of 36-hole facilities that start to be built uh, at, at later when you look at the timeline on it. Mm-hmm. If they were built later, they built uh, more than 18. Yeah, it's interesting to think – So this this one was 1907, maybe, you know, kind of slowly. Yeah, it's interesting to think about the constraints that were on building courses back then. So you had that constraint of like, will we even have the golfers? It doesn't necessarily make sense to build out 18 or 27 and – and risk like you risk the financial loss of doing that if it doesn't go well. Plus, on the constraint of building it, you mentioned you know using the landforms that were there. Well, without the tools that we have now to go in and manipulate land, like you you were necessarily constrained in in a in a way on the grounds. You didn't even have the option of making significant changes unless you had tons of money, right? Which we get when you especially when you get into like the Rainer McDonald sort of work, and they're like, oh, we can throw money at building golf courses. That's fine. But before that, it's like, no, there's the land. Like, you can manipulate a little bit, um, but have at it and work around the features that are there. So I'll jump to the, the next one. And uh, shout out to two, two things that English golf uh, really embraced. So this is course number two, Royal Cinqua Ports. So I, I got I to give a shout out to just the royal patronage idea of courses, you know, how does it even happen? Like, how, how do you? How does one course become royal and one one doesn't? Like, I want to know what the requirements are for royal patronage. Yeah, and what what's the? I'm imagine some ceremony, right? When you your golf course is also going to get that royal <laughs> tag. Like, what is the? Is this like a knighthood ceremony that goes on? What's the? Uh, what's what's the process? It's going to be what you're doing with your students today. Yeah, you got to walk across and and uh, I hear ye grant thyself. Royal patronage of Cinque Ports. I mean, uh, so that was that was the first thing. Royal patronage. The second one is just two names. I love. The, I'm sure a lot of people hate this because it's confusing, but I think it's so hilarious that courses in in clubs in Scotland and uh, Wales and Ireland and, and England they like fifty percent probably have two names. You know, I think it, it always stems from this one. I think I do know it stems from where it's located and the and the club's name. So it's like. Uh, Cinque Ports is in Deal, so that people call it Deal. So it's two names: a Royal Cinque Ports, and then you might hear somebody just refer to it as, "Oh yeah, I played Deal mm-hmm. last week, and it was fantastic." You know, so that's always that's the other element that I'm always uh, cheerful about. I just think it's so funny. People are like Deal, what's Deal? I've never played Deal. Royal Cinque Ports is great, but I've never played Deal. Interesting. Yeah, I always uh, I've always known it as Deal for whatever reason. Um, like the first time I heard, or whenever I recently I heard World Cinco Ports, I'm like, where? And then someone's like, no deal. I'm like, oh, yeah. Um, do we have Just anywhere in America quick, that's like that? Like, what's. Oh, good is, question. Is there a course you know by a different name than its stated name? That's a good question. I can't think of any off the top of my head. I mean, Augusta National gets referred to as. Augusta or the National, but those are all both in the name, so right. that doesn't count. Um, man, maybe we should start that trend. Can we? So, 
Some have Should we just start obviously. referring to to Sweetens as South Pit <laughs> South, South Pittsburgh? Is that you think that would catch on? I mean, I do say I'm going to South Pit a lot, right? I, South Pit, yeah. Uh, some quick facts on Deal. 1892, Henry Hunter. Um, it is in the top 100 on most of the world lists, including you know Golf Week, Golf Digest, uh, uh, top 100. Um, it's number 11 in, in England. It is. Uh, uh, it's hosted three opens. Mm. So, oh no, I'm sorry. It was the third English course to host an open, and it only hosted two. Okay. And so the only courses to host less opens are Princes, which we just talked about, and Royal Port Rush, which is about to host its second. So they'll be uh, tied with. Uh, the Royal Cinco Ports here. Do you have our winners? Um, Do you know the, the in your in your research? I'm admitting to the, oh, the audience. I, don't I did not do any research for this uh, for this episode, so I'm putting out <laughs> all this on that. We gave you reprieve on this one, <laughs> but um, no, I don't have the winners for for those opens. I've for some of the other ones we're going to for sure, but not that one. Uh, the last seven holes here, Kevin, at Deal are typically played into the wind and brutal. <laughs> Everybody said it's a tough, tough stretch. Like you need to make the turn under par or well below your handicap if you're going to shoot your number at Deal because I guess that last seven, even the last nine, I think is in, it's all in, the, the trade wind is into. But even without that, I guess it's it's a brute. Uh, recently, they changed one of the par fours to par five based on on that alone. But uh, one of my favorite things, so I should get to a Darwin. We got to talk about Bernard Darwin, who is kind of the authority on all these places, at least in written word, when you do your Google searches and research. I mean, Darwin lived in this part of the country Mm. and he was a member of of clubs in the Heathlands and the Southeast Coast. So he has a ton of incredible quotes uh, around this. I'll I'll jump to one here. Darwin says, golf at deal is very good indeed. Fine, straight ahead, long hitting golf, wherein the fives are likely to be many and the fours few. So that just speaks to the difficulty. He got away with words. Uh, Hagen Hagen came in and said that uh, I'm currently unbeatable at this game, and he finished 55th in one of those opens. (laughs) So I thought that was good. Don't don't, don't mess with the golf gods. There's one rule in life don't mess with them. (laughs) Uh, so, so, so that's deal. Let's keep rolling if that's all right. Royal St. George's. Ah, Royal St. George's. If Sandwich, right? That one's not a sandwich. <laughs> right? uh, yep. That's the other second name. You got it. And Royal Patronage. Maybe and it's a, Ro- maybe it's a combo deal. Maybe it's like if you earn Royal Patronage, then you get your second name. That's yeah. And then they can members Seems logo. Greedy. And Seems a little greedy. Yeah. I want to, we got, we got to have one or the other. You it. get to have two names or. Or royal patronage. We're going to have to dig into the royal patronage thing and like get someone on the to deep dive this. Yeah, I and we will. I should know this is this is totally just a preview of these courses in this area. Well, just like we did with Ireland, just like we did with Scotland, we're gonna we're gonna bring on people that know this stuff inside and out. We're just kind of given the the. the first run, if you will, on on why we're headed to these inspiring places. The Open's been there a lot. I think it's been hosted, what, more times than, I think it's the most frequented, it was the first English course to host an Open, hmm. and it's the fourth mo- most used in the Rota. Wow. Uh, so they've had, fif- they've had 15 Opens at St. George's. I would not, yeah. have, would not have guessed that. That's, you said fourth most. Lip, uh, fourth most. Okay. Yep. Okay. Some pretty so, quirky Opens there, too. Can you name 
there's been so in our lifetime, I guess, or since we, you and I, have been watching golf, uh, the last five the, of the last five winners, how many can you name? Oof. Of the Open at Royal St. George, I know three. Um, oh wow! One okay. re- recently is Colin Morikawa. That's where he won. Right? Nice. Um, the other yeah, two, the other two, I just know because it's one quirky, like. For my memory, maybe historically this is true too, but it's always known like when the Morikawa Open was starting, like quirky winners. So Darren Clark, I know that one because me and my I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a gambler, but me and my buddy, I'm, I'll keep him nameless in case he doesn't want disclose. Um, we were betting on majors every year just for fun. We took like ten golfers and put like twenty bucks, I think, each on each golfer, and we always picked a couple in the bottom. And I told him, let's go, Darren Clark. Wake up, you know, that next morning and see he's near the top of the leaderboard of the first round. I'm like, you got her bet in? He's like, no, I forgot to put it in. And we would have had Darren Clark at like oh. 500 to one, you know, with 20 bucks on him. But so I, I remember that one because of then that is such so awesome watching got, him win. And then Ben Curtis. Oh, I mean, the so other cool. ones, Ben Curtis. Ah, oh, there you go. Like, can't forget that one. That's, you know, Ohio, Ohio boy. Um, born and raised, Fellow, played right up the street. Former former guest on this podcast in, in Northeast Ohio. And yeah, Ben Curtis, 2003. Flash. If you would have had, you might be retired, Professor, if you would have had money on Ben Curtis to win. That's, he was, uh, what was it, 392nd? Uh, oh God, what's the stat? It was like, it was, I, I, we could look that up. That that was a, one of the most, uh, biggest underdogs to ever win a major. Yeah, and was... Is that the Thomas Bjorn here where like he flubbed it in the bunker like three times, left it in the bunker, and that's one of the ways. I mean, Ben, I just remember Ben hitting to the front edge with like every hole and just two-putting from everywhere and making a couple good birdies. And I think Bjorn like made a triple somewhere in the middle of the back nine to just eject himself. And Yeah, you know, yeah Bjorn, Bjorn kind of definitely fell away. But Ben Curtis won the 2003, okay, Open 2003. Championship right. at the odds of 500 to one. Yeah. So right in the bottom, that's where Darren Clark, I believe was right in that bottom group, but they don't typically, they don't yep. typically odds worse than that. Um, Can who, you name the winners in the eighties and nineties? I got nothing. I got nothing for you on those. Like I wouldn't even begin to guess who's, uh, who won at that place. 93, Greg Norman. Oh, one of his, how many did he, two or three? I don't know. Opens. Yeah. At least. He got a couple. Two. Um, Maybe at a third, and in there. then, and then our uh, eighty or eighty-five, Sandy Lyle, oh. suspender pants. Sandy, love Sandy. Always yeah, so. Yep. Good old. Sandy so that, those are your your recent winners, but fifteen other opens. So they got a ton of history here. Um, our friend Bernard Darwin was president of the club for nine years. So there you go. There's his plenty of quotes from him on that. Uh, here's one. My idea of heaven as to be attained on earthly links is sandwich. So he, he thought very highly of the golf course. Um, then uh, Royal Patronage, I, I got to stick with that. The Prince of Wales was club captain. Hmm. And, and here's where the Royal Patronage, you know, there's probably some favors happening because they were granted in 1902. Guess who was the president or the, uh, the club captain at uh-huh. that time? The royal, you know, Prince of Wales. So I, again, royal patronage. I, I, I need answers. I need answers for these clubs that that carry this moniker. Uh, the routing. I think you'd love this, Kevin. the The routing is not out and back. It is very, m- very much more similar to Muirfield mm-hmm. on the Rota, and so it has a circular uh, in and out kind of 
uh, routing to it, which creates, you know, I, I think they, they talk about quirky winners and, and quirky golf course. That's got to be part of it, right? Uh, being able to gauge the wind direction as it changes from T to T. That's right. Yeah. Other um, fun stats on St. George's is the uh, tallest bunker in the UK. That's on the fourth hole. You've seen pictures of, of that, I'm sure. People yep. take pictures like it's a the world's biggest ball of yarn, you know? Mm-hmm, <laughs> and mm-hmm. and uh, the the term Elysian Fields, that is the fairway beyond that bunker. Mm-hmm. So that that I did not know, but interesting. Um, Tom Doak has a bunch of comments, as he does on, on every course in his confidential guide. But uh, he, let's see. I imagine he likes it a lot with the quirk that, that's involved with the course. Yeah, yeah. Whatever petty criticisms have been leveled over the lack of visibility on some holes or the need for good fortune to master its difficulties, Sandwich has the four prerequisites of great architecture. It has them in spades. Challenging golf holes, beautifully crafted greens and bunkers, a character of its own, stunning scenery. So there's Doke's uh, um, take. I think he he is commenting on uh, there was a lot of blindness to the course Mm -hmm. that has been removed. That has been removed. Uh, uh, yeah. And uh, where do you stand on blind shots in, and blindness? Oh, I, I'm a thousand percent in favor. And and it's funny, England, we could get off on a whole tangent here about, you know, the emergence of stroke play came from England. Mm. So golf was a match play sport in Scotland. And when it crossed the border, um, people began to care much more about score. I think that could potentially have a lot to do with the inland golf courses where variables are much more controlled than say out on the, uh, cause frankly, when the wind's blowing 10 miles per hour in the morning and 40 miles per hour in, in the afternoon, nobody gives a shit what you shot. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the truth in Scotland. They really truly don't cause they, they don't know what your conditions were. And yeah. that's the biggest factor for, for them in a lot of ways. But in England, I, I imagine that now you have so many more England inland golf courses that the, the, variables were a bit more controlled and so people care about their score they want to know what you shot and that is your you know new gold star or or your way of measuring yourself to other golfers so i I think that has to do with stroke play that also has to do with blind shots because then once you you trying to like have this and this goes to our fairness discussion right of does every golfer need to see where they're going for it to be you know the the evaluation of your skill and not um, these random things. And and so I think blind shots are very much viewed by that school of, of golf course architecture and players as uh, unfair in, in some ways. And I, I just think it, it's so much more indicative of, of life, right? A blind shot. There's so many things we have to do in our, in our lives that we don't have an answer. We don't, we don't know the outcome until we get there. Right. Mm-hmm. And what, what happened. So I, I love blind shots. I feel like I, I personally as a golfer embrace them because it, it, you just, you do your best to decide where that shot is going to end up. And sometimes you're right. Sometimes you're wrong. Yeah. You wonder that stroke play thing with contextualizing with the, the boom of golf too, that you um, described at the beginning, you wonder, you know, the, the more people playing, now you're having competitions, the more those competitions are extended throughout the entire day. And you need a way like, okay, if we now have 60 people playing, how do we have a format in which we can decide a champion? And you wonder how much stroke play emerged from that need too. Just 
rather than a, oh, there's 12 players and we can easily do a match play thing and have this thing done in two days. Well, if it's 60 players, you can't accomplish that. So you wonder, I wonder how much stroke play emerged um, in order to just handle the boom of golf and bigger fields and wanting to have competitions in which people could participate in. That's a good point too. That's a really good point, Professor, that, that uh, just the size of fields and, and being able to conduct something over a weekend with busy you know, people working during the week and wanting to, yeah, stroke play, certainly <laughs> it would be required, right? Yeah, it lets that's, you do that. I mean, that's the one, I always say it's the one knock on match play. It's hard to conduct a tournament in a timely manner playing match play with a lot of players. That's just a, yeah. you got to, you know, that's why we always whittle it down on stroke play first, all right? Two rounds of stroke play and then we'll do match play and make it feasible. Yep, yep. I wasn't sure how many of these we'd get through today. I mean, it is a big... 10-day trip, so there's a lot of golf. I think we'll probably just cover uh, one more today uh, for the show. Well, we can talk about the Heathland courses on another. Uh, there's so much to get into with Heathland and how um, you talk about club formation. I think there's a lot we can gain from that, talking about the Heathland courses just outside of – it's not just outside of London. There's other Heathland areas of England that have golf courses, but – um, but I think we get into that on our next episode. The last one down here on the southeast coast in the downland uh, side of the country, the Linksland, is – and this one isn't even a guarantee yet. So sorry, Peter, if, if, uh, if I'm uh, talking about something we're that putting, we're not even – Putting them on the spot. Confirmed. But I want to talk about this one because it uh, – this is the stuff that gets me pretty excited. It's a very unique place and that's uh, Rye, Rye Golf Club. Mm. And um, – they they have old and new, or maybe they used to, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe they lost one, but no, they got old and new. Uh, and it was Harry Colt. Yeah. Harry Colt, 1894. Um, so Harry, a lot of people view Harry Colt, especially in England, as like the way we might view Donald Ross, perhaps, in the U.S., as our kind of prolific um, uh golf course architecture, uh, I, I don't know how you want to phrase it, but just holding high regard by pretty much everybody, um, except himself. Harry Colt was very self-deprecating with some of his quotes that you can find, which was interesting. But he built Rye Golf Club in 1894. Hmm. 1894. He was 25 years old. 25, 25 years, years old. old. So this was wow. this was his debut, debut golf, golf club and um, – a lot of people think it's the best debut of any architect ever. <laughs> so it's number 17 on the top 100 golf courses list in England. Uh, and for a lot of its life, it was extremely private, which is kind of contrast to um, the rest of this list where they are not. Uh, they are accessible both to visitors and public tea times as well as golf societies and uh, clubs without real estate they get to play upon their, their grounds. Um, but Rye was extremely private. And so uh, more recently, though, and this is why it's still an outside chance we'll be able to play it as members of the new club, um, you know, writing letters to club presidents is, is always, or club captains is always respected over there and actual mailing of a letter and why you'd like to play their golf club. I, I think that's a cool tradition. I, <laughs> I think it's, it's – uh, Somewhat pomp and circumstance, but also uh, I, I respect tradition. I think yeah. that's it's a cool thing that they occasionally make available. So uh, for the Rye Golf Club, you know, it uh, it's it's very difficult 
to get on. It's also very difficult to play. People say it's it's one of the hardest golf courses in the British Isles. Um, another one that, and, and this is much more true of the Heathland courses, Kevin, that we're going to get into, but it's a par 68, 6,300 mm. yard golf course. Love, love that. Love that so much. Um, I'm always, I'm always struck by our, I mean, maybe this is tying in the Proctor conversation of fairness and stroke play, right? The obsession with par 70 to 72. I mean, we were just doing a renovation to our extra nine holes and like, I think we only ended up with one par five rather than two. And like that part, that dominated a lot of the conversation, which to me, thinking of like the other things that should dominate the conversation, including who the architect is, what are the principles being incorporated in the course? Like, what are we trying to accomplish? No, like so much of the conversation was like, well, how can't we get another par five on this? How can we only have two? And actually, there might not even be a single par five on the, on the new one. And it just kind of blows me away. Like, why, why are we so obsessed with that? Right, so you have one of the tough, what considered one of the toughest courses in Britain at par sixty-eight. That probably means it's only was it six thousand sixty-two hundred yards, something like that. Sixty-three, sixty-three hundred yards, sixty-three. Yeah. yeah, so it's like, well, hey, whatever the grounds give you, build a golf course on that, and yeah, why think about what the par ends up? Yeah, yeah. Darwin uh, really loved rye. He um, actually died near. Rye. Uh, he moved there later in his life. And um, I mean, there's so many quotes he has on Rye actually, but I'll just do this one. Surely there can be nowhere, surely there can nowhere be anything appreciably better than the golf to be had at this div- truly divine spot. Uh, so Darwin, if I have any knock on Darwin, he, he Sends around a lot of superlatives, but the man loved golf. He was a master of the written word, uh, but he he had a bunch of great things to say about Rye. Oh, here's another one. The two great features of golf at Rye are the uniformly fiendish behavior of the wind mm-hmm. and the fascinating variety of the stances. So major un- undulating fairways at uh, at Rye is what uh, what you read about and. Um, yeah, wherever it's situated on that coastline apparently is a windy, windy spot. So you want to mess with a good golfer. Those are the two, two, uh, definitely two variables of the equation that can mess with the most. I always, in consulting with some architects when they're building some courses, uh, they'll ask like, Hey, what, you know, what can we do to, to mess with the best golfers or, you know, to make things difficult and they want to, you know, position greens and pins and think about those things. I'm like, uneven lives. Like that's, that's the thing that will mess with a good golfer because you give them an even lie. It doesn't matter elevation changes, tucking pin, like greens with awkward bunkers. No, with a good flat lie, especially the best in the game, they're gonna they're not gonna be deceived by what you put in front of them. They're gonna just get the the carry yardage they need and they're gonna hit their spot. And they're not gonna worry about it. But if you throw you know a ninety yard shot and it's a little bit of a downslope with the right foot above the left and maybe the ball a little bit down and away from you, like. Things get a lot tougher, um, a lot quicker for a good player. That that take take it back to Royal St George's actually shares a lot of those same commonalities with Rye. Is that uh, if you look at um, the U.S. or the sorry the Open champions there and uh, and those that didn't play well, like there's a lot of undulation in the fairways, subtle undulation in the fairways at at uh, Royal St George, and so a lot of the the pros. 
it's their least favorite on the road. Of course. There's some that have come out and and said it. Uh, Yeah, because they don't like, well, and that answers the blindness too, uh, that they removed a lot of the blindness probably because a lot of those professionals who want to control every single variable don't love the fact that they have a slightly uphill lie after a perfect drive or a slightly side hill lie after a perfect drive down the right side of the fairway. It's like, ah, that's the randomness, man, that you got to answer. What's your answer to that? How are you going to hit that shot? And uh, you, you just look at the winners and they're, um, I think, I don't know, just seem to be people that embrace that perhaps. I think, I mean, I think that's, we can generalize across the open. Um, when you look at some of the winners across the open, that's a lot of the names there, even the greats that are there that perform great in America as well. They're players that can just golf their ball and they can respond to those, une- you know, the different varying wins, the uneven lies. And they just realize that golf, the goal is just to put the ball in the hole, the end and whatever way you need to do it. And so you see guys like Ben Curtis, I mean, always, I mean, growing up in a, when he was playing at Kent and growing up in high school, right? Like he was known as the scraper. Like he just didn't look pretty, but man, he just got it in the hole no matter what the situation was. And so hence, it wasn't shocking to us at least. I mean, it was shocking in the world rankings sense or whatever, but in terms of can this guy win on a, an open course, you would say, yeah, he, if he's playing good that week, he will find a way to get it in the hole. Yeah, yeah. I, I, gosh, I vividly remember watching that whole thing and thinking the exact same thing, Kevin. It's like, God, I knew this guy was capable, but he's actually doing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's actually getting it done. This is it was so cool, man. What a what a scrapper. You're right. Just solid putting stroke guy. Just hung in there. Was couldn't get rid of him like a boxer. He just would take blows and bend, bend and Oh, he's a he's a stud. Coaching high school golf now in in Northeast Ohio and loving it. I ran into him not too long ago. Well, that's our our list of the Southeast Coast. And uh, one one thought. I mean, we're playing a few places that have hosted rotas uh, or opens on, and we're part of the rota. Only one in Royal St. George that is still a part of the rota and probably always will be. But what what like is as you, Kevin? You've made the trips not to England, but you've made it to Scotland and. You know, when you weigh the ability to play an open road, of course, versus not, mm. is it, you know, how do you balance that? And because we're playing a, a plenty, especially in the Heathlands, that um, will will never host an open. And, you know, I think I'll say personally, I definitely was the golfer. Like, I got to play the road. Like, I got to play. If I'm making this trip, if I'm going to pay this money, I have to play where the Open Championship is because I'm going to see it on TV. It's where the pros play, blah, blah, blah. Uh, maybe it's age and maybe it's also I've been blessed to make a few trips at this point. Like if I don't play a road, of course, I will be just fine because what has changed in me is the knowledge of these other courses are so stinking good. Mm-hmm. And, and usually the reason they haven't hosted an o- a Rota is – Maybe they are only sixty-two hundred yards, and they can't stretch further. Or maybe the uh, where the club is landlocked against the coast, you just can't get the infrastructure in there to host an open. Like there's so many other reasons that these places don't get opens, and they're all so like uh, preserved. I guess mm-hmm. is the word. Like a lot of these clubs and courses, and why New Club takes the time to go to these parts of the world is these are the ins- the places that inspire us. Like these yeah. are the reasons we started 
our own golf club to get people to play more golf together. And, and when you go there, you almost feel like you're in a time machine where these clubs are, are again, preserved by their members and their captains to be the thing that made them special in the first place and not try to contrive and, and be something that they're not. They're all very proud of who they are as golf clubs. They're all very proud of their golf courses. Yes, they make changes like anywhere, but I think more than us, they kind of identify what is good of golf and what is good about this game and and don't get lost in the other stuff, if that makes sense. And, and that's why we go there. So for me, it doesn't require an open championship anymore. It, it Rye will never host a, a club, but if they're willing to host us, I'm, I can tell you I'm going to really enjoy that day <laughs> and, mm-hmm. uh, and places like that. No, I, that's spot on. Right? I think we, we've both been very poor fortunate fortunate to have played tons of championship golf courses tons of top 100 golf courses you know we've seen a lot um and there was a time that was yeah how we decided to choose the golf courses we played right and i don't think there's anything wrong with that like anybody going to scotland for the first time play the hits right do that um because i think you might most people would probably regret not getting to play the hits if they went over there um so yeah do that but i think Having now play, you know, been fortunate to play courses like that, no longer it's, is that a main requirement for me? Is their their ranking or whatever? It's like, what are the places to be proud of? What, you know, what are the places that we can learn something from? That could be architecture, that could be club structure. Um, what are the places where we're going to just connect and have fun and enjoy the day with those that we're sharing it with? Right, and that could be. An honesty box place, or that could be the, the old course, or that could be Murfield, right? Depending on that day and who you're with and what the goal is. Um, so for me, that's where it's come down to now. You know, like I, I just I want to know the place is good, with good being a very general comment in the sense of like g- a good experience. Um, and again, that ranges from honesty box to a full day at Murfield. Um, where now I do more gravitate, I'd say towards the places where I know it's going to be a good experience in terms of any one of us from off the street could just walk up and play it. That's where I gravitate towards now. But certainly that wasn't the case five or 10 years ago. You know, I was really wanting to learn about architecture. So I was Essex counties of the world and that trying to figure out ways to play those and learn from those. Yeah. 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 That's why I like digging in the history of this stuff too, is you kind of start to realize why things are the way they are mm-hmm. by, you know, going into the history books and, um, and we'll do that next time for the Heathland. I think there's a lot to garner in in the Heathland discussion. So we might we might force you to do some research on that one, Professor, if you're up for it. Oh, yeah, I got, I got uh, a couple of friends that played over there too, and they speak incredibly highly of it and say it, the Heathlands might be um, better than some, you know, better than the Scotland hotspots if you uh, remove the history yeah. aspect from it. That's what I hear. So you know, the, our our hit list for. Uh, the Heathling Golf Courses is, is um, the Surrey area, the Berkshire Sandbelt. You know, we'll talk about kind of that land geography, why it's the way it is. But you got Swinley Forest, St. George's Hill, Woking, Walton Heath, Huntercombe, the Addington, and uh, and what Sunningdale. So, well, wow. uh, boom, that'll be fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to diving into a little bit more. That, that. is the list. <laughs> As someone had just said, like you know, I don't always chase or whatever that is that is a good, <laughs> i'm back i'm back baby i'm chasing 
I mean, that I know you're playing that sequence of golf. I mean, you're gonna you won't need you won't need sleep. Your adrenaline's gonna carry you through. Yeah, and as I always say on these trips, it's like our goal is new club, meaning you know our our first primary goal is just members having a great time, going on these trips and and having special memories for a lifetime, doing it with people that share this deeper passion for golf. And uh, you can't go wrong with that recipe. You really can't. But the other thing that I always tell people is if we can take 10% of what makes golf special in Scotland or 10% of what we experienced in Ireland last year, or 10% of what we experienced in England in, in 2025, and we bring that home to our local chapters, to our local you know, a couple, a couple of these clubs are going to welcome us into their clubhouse and we're going to have lunch with them. We're going to talk to their their captains. Like those opportunities, I think, are when you start to realize that golf has lost its way in, in American culture in, in a lot of places. And I think we can just reset uh, ourselves, you know, and some of it's good, some of it's bad, some of it's probably debatable and subjective, but you start to realize what makes golf communities and golf clubs special and important in people's lives. And then you, you try to implement it, you know, mm-hmm. with our own community here at new club. So I will step down from the soapbox and thank you professor for uh, an awesome chat here about England. Um, I wonder if the OC took off in England. Do you think that was a popular show there in the London suburbs? I feel like uh, maybe popular just in the sense of making fun of Americans. I would I would expect, right? Let's watch this like <laughs> I don't know what adjective they'd use, but this chintzy television show that's just and they could just sit there and laugh at everything that you know everything about our culture and and, and what we foreground. That dry sarcasm from English brother. We need to get, oh, I can't they, wait. They might like Seth Cohen. They might like uh, Adam Brody's oh, character. Oh, he's so sarcastic. Yeah. You mean you? I, I think that was that's you in a nutshell, actually, in your college years is Seth Cohen. I had that, that does, does your wife, does Claire know about you and Summer Roberts? That's what I want to know. Because I know you, you had, did you have a poster of her hanging in your dorm? Don't worry about what I had hanging or not hanging in my dorm. But yeah, <laughs> by the way, her character did not age greatly. Like watching now, it's like, wait, I liked her? Like, She's oh, the one yeah. I liked, but that she is that's my okay. she is my type, I should say, in terms of uh, <laughs> in, in particular. Oh, that's the 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 OC crossover from the world of golf. Uh, well, thank you, Professor. Congrats on graduation today. Enjoy it. Uh, we'll talk to you next time. And thank you to uh, Titleist for supo- uh, supporting the podcast, supporting New Club, and thank you to you for listening all year long. This has been a blast, and we. The professor and I have some uh, fun episodes up our sleeve for 2024 as we get into the new year. That's right. Everyone enjoy your week. Have a good one.